together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth. Thank you for what you have done, not only to reveal words to us that are collected into a book that are your words, but also to give us the truth that's made flesh, um, to show us who you are, um, to give his life for us, to show us what your love is like and how deep and how wide it is, uh, but also to show us who we are as people in desperate need of saving and redeeming and loving and in need of life. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we open this uh, text together. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to say to the church. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For some reason, I have lost contact with my um, what's behind me. So uh, I'll see if I can do this. Of course, we're on live stream. I love this. This is so awesome. Well, the year was 1933. June, excuse me, February 27th. It was a red letter year because on that particular day, in that year, someone set fire to the German Reichstag. That is the equivalent of our Capitol building. It was an assault against the German sovereignty. It was an assault against the German people. And as a result, the communists were blamed for the fire, for the ar arson. At that particular time, that 1933 was when Hitler was appointed chancellor. In response to that assault by the supposed communists, the parliament voted to give legislative power to young Adolf, consolidating his dictatorship. You create an enemy, a common enemy, and it's interesting how quickly people will be willing to give up their rights. But the story gets better, and that is that historians have discovered evidence that it was actually the Nazis that set fire to the Reichstag or the Capitol building, and then they blamed the communists, which means the consolidation of power in the hands of the Nazi regime was built upon a single lie. It's amazing, the power of a single lie, based upon a lie that the communists had attacked the center of German power, he gained for himself what we've come to know as his Nazi power. It's a lie, the power of a lie. There are other kinds of lies that we're more familiar with, like false narratives that we swim in. They're all over the place. And they're not hard to construct. So let me give you a, a clumsy, stupid example. If I were a producer of, let's call my network PNN, Parkway News Network, and I was to show you clip after clip after clip of Pomeranian dogs attacking cats, all right, Pomeranian being a dog breed, attacking cats, and I showed you clips, footage of Pomeranians attacking cats over and over and over again, and then I was to suggest that Pomeranians are hostile to cats, to felines. And that's all that you saw. With the suggestion that they are hostile to cats, you would come to believe that the Pomeranian breed is, is, is a not a cat-loving breed, and you would probably opt not to purchase one, especially if you're a cat lover. That's what happens when you are subjected to something repeatedly, selectively, and negatively. That is, it forms an opinion, a perception of reality. I fight with this every time that we've taken a trip to Israel. 
the first response is it's not safe there. Why? Well, because you have been exposed repeatedly, selectively, and negatively to news about what happens there, rarely positive. I can tell you firsthand that there are places in Fairfield that I'd choose not to live way before I'd live in Israel. That is safer there, in my opinion, than parts of Fairfield. That is overcoming this perception that's been shaped by repetition, selectivity, negativity over and over and over again. So back to the Pomeranians. So I have formed a view in your mind, a perception of Pomeranians as a cat-hating dog. And at that point, you have to stop and go, okay, let's ask some questions. The footage of those particular Pomeranians, what kind of homes were they raised in? On top of that, what is the percentage of Pomeranians as opposed to other dog breeds that are also hostile to cats? Say, the Jack Russell Terrier or a Bulldog or a Pitbull. Those are questions. And after maybe some analysis and some research, you come to realize that the footage of those Pomeranians was footage of Pomeranians that had been abused as puppies and therefore had kind of a mean streak because of its environment. And if you were to do some more digging, you might find out that actually less than 1% of Pomeranians actually attack cats, which would tell you something different. That, in fact, Pomeranians are great. Dog breed. Don't take my word for it. That's all made up. That's hypothetical. <laughs> the point is, it's not hard to construct a false narrative, to distort the truth and form public opinion. The power of a lie. The power of deception. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the greatest danger we face, that is the greatest danger of evil that we face, is the evil of deception. We mustn't forget that the whole of humanity was brought down by a single deception, Genesis chapter 3. Which brings us to our topic. Latter half of chapter 13 focuses our attention on a false prophet. Now, it's not called a false prophet in this chapter. It's referred to later in chapter 16, chapter 19, and chapter 20 as the false prophet. Now, we have seen a sequence of negative images. Chapter 12, 12 focused our attention on the negative image of a dragon, which is identified in that chapter with the devil or Satan or the serpent. That is the arch enemy, arch enemy of God's people. That was image, negative image number one. The, the second image um, was a beast, a monster with seven heads and, and ten horns and, and so forth that symbolized earthly power. That is kings, kingdoms that did the bidding of the dragon. So you have these two monsters so far that are, again, symbols of reality. The dragon, beast number one, and now we come to beast number two, number two the third in the unholy trio which is referred to, like I said, as a false prophet later. Now that helps to think of this picture that we're going to see as a false prophet because it helps us to compare with the true prophet. What is a true prophet of God, the prophets in the Old Testament? Well, they were someone who is a messenger, someone who deals with speech, revelation. They have, they have a message to, to tell. That's, that's part of what it means to be a prophet, a speaker. Two, the Old Testament true prophets of God ultimately intended by their message to point people back to 
the worship of the one true God. Most of the prophets that are, have been written have been a call for people to worship God and God alone. So they have a message. That message has a purpose. And that is for the worship of true God. And oftentimes God would authenticate the prophet's message by way of signs and miracles. So Moses, all of the signs and miracles in Egypt, was an authentication that he was a prophet of God. Elijah called down fire from heaven. It was authentication that Elijah was a, was a prophet of God. Jesus, the Son of God, was attested, authenticated by signs and wonders, as were his apostles. So there is a, a, this authentication that God gives to his prophets by way of signs and wonders. So if that's the true prophet, someone who's a messenger, points people to the worship of the one true God, and also someone who is uh, authenticated by signs and wonders. Well, then a false prophet is the reverse, as we will see. So two parts to this. First, I just want to simply unpack some of this, the symbol. Again, if you were living in the first century, I think you would have understood the symbols, but we have to work a little harder. And then just uh, briefly at the end, some application of this. So the false prophet, what are we supposed to see in these images. The first, verse 11, uh, John sees another beast rising out of the earth, the first one out of the sea, second one out of the earth, and by the way, Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel, chapter 7, both of, all of his beasts come out of the sea and the earth, so that's probably a reflection of that. But it's, it's described as it has two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It has horns like a lamb, and yet speaks like a dragon. Now, when you think lamb, what do you think of? I mean, the first beast was menacing, but a lamb? Lambs aren't menacing. Like, you want to huddle a lamb. You want to pet a lamb. Like, lambs are gentle. It's a symbol of gentleness. And lambs that have horns, have you ever seen a lamb that has horns? If they do, they're really tiny. That is just a picture of gentleness, someone unassuming, someone who is, looks harmless. So while the, at first glance, this is a, like a lamb with two horns and all the other, the lamb that was slain, Jesus has seven horns, and of course the, the first beast has ten horns. This is a diminished sense of power, but its authority is in its words. Looks harmless but speaks deception. He has a mouth like a dragon. That is, it's devilish. It's satanic. Jesus taught us something similar to this to watch out for. When he told us and his disciples, he said, beware of false prophets. In his mind, Jesus' mind, it's not just one false prophet. False prophets, plural, are going to come. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sheep just want to hang out and eat grass. But a wolf wants to eat the sheep, consume, have its appetite filled. So he's watch out for those who are unassuming and those who seem harmless, but inside are ravenous wolves. That's kind of the same idea. Here's a lamb with the voice of a dragon. I was thinking about how, how deception happened in the first century and realized that it goes somewhat, well, way slower than it does in our day, right? In order for you to deceive people or lie to people, you, it was word of mouth. You had to go and actually teach somewhere 
or you had to send a letter, like an epistle, snail mail. So the rate at which a deception could go out in the ancient world was relatively slow. It still happened, but it was relatively slow. Think about today. We have information that goes out as fast as the speed of light over fiber optic highways. The amount of information that we have access to. The modes of communication are legion. And you combine that with the fact that, and this has been a, a demonstrated fact, interesting little book, it's actually it's not a little book, it's a big book, um, well, medium-sized book, uh, called The Shallows, What the Internet Has Done to Our Brain by Nicholas Carr. And he goes to show that, you know, we have brains that rewire themselves. It's called neuroplasticity, in which every time you, you start doing something in a patterned way, your, your brain re rewires itself according to whatever it does, its practice. And his point in the book is, so you don't have to read it now because I'm going to tell you what the point of the book is, is that the Internet is rewiring our brains to be unfocused and distracted so that we can't actually stop, focus, analyze things. Right? So have you ever been online and you're reading an article about Pomeranian dogs and you come across on the right side this, this other dog breed called the Shih Tzu. And that's not a bad word. That's actually the name of a dog breed. And you're like, click, I want to see that. And pretty soon you're like 15 clicks away from your original article. What's that training you to do? Be distracted and unfocused. That's his point. So you combine the level of information that's going out at light speed and the amount of information combined with our inability to stop, focus, and analyze. And we are ripe for deception. Our culture is ripe for deception. This is the work of the false prophet, is to deceive. To deceive. May seem harmless enough, but the dragon speaks. Two, the false prophet convinces people to worship counterfeit gods. Verse 12, it says, It, referring to the false prophet, exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. If the true prophet of God main intent through his message was to get people to worship the one true God or to repent and uh, turn back to God in covenant faithfulness, when then the false prophet is do, it does exactly the opposite. His intent is to get you to worship anything but, but God. In this particular case, it's the first beast, which is, again, a symbol of earthly human fallen power, powers of state, powers of governance. That is his job, is to get the people of the world to worship something else in particular human power. That's what he does right here. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, but for what end, what purpose? That the inhabitants worship the first beast, is to get people to worship something else other than God, which is idolatry in the Bible. Now think about how, how um, de deception works for a moment and why it's so dangerous. Brute force is not enough. If you have superior force, power, you can subjugate a people. Like, you know, the Russians invade Ukraine. You can subjugate a people through power. But those people, oftentimes, that are subjugated, do so 
begrudgingly. They chafe against this force of oppression. Inwardly, they rebel, though they outwardly, in terms of behavior, may submit. A deception does something different. It appeals to the will. It promises something you need or something that you want so that you willingly follow. If you're deceived, you're like, absolutely. It's uh, Edmund and the Turkish delight in Narnia series. He wanted the Turkish delight, and he willingly, willingly followed the ice queen. That's what deception does. It doesn't come by way of force. It induces the will to want to do it. That's the purpose of the false prophet, to get people to want to worship something other than God because something is promised or a desire is is appealed to. Think for a second. How was it that Adolf Hitler was able to have such a following in, in, uh, in, in the German population? How? It wasn't brute force. Not initially, anyway. No, he had a master orator, a propagandist by the name of Joseph Goebbels. He was a false prophet. He was able to paint the Nazi regime in favorable colors, thereby inciting people to willfully follow. That is the danger of deception. It actually appeals to your will so that you decide, which makes it so dangerous. The false prophet wants the world to want to worship fallen power, to worship earthly things. So that's the second thing. Again, it's the reverse of a true prophet. Third, the false prophet convinces through counterfeit signs and wonders. So you have here verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and um, to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image. I'm going to come back to that in a second. An image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that it actually spoke. And might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Signs and wonders. Like I said, you know, God authenticated the ministry of Moses by signs and wonders. And if you remember that story, there were Egyptian sorcerers who could mimic his signs and wonders, at least to a point. They could throw their staff onto the ground and it would turn into a serpent and they could make water into blood. And I think that's what's going on here. Like, the devil doesn't have the power to raise the dead. Only Jesus does. There's a difference between true, authentic signs and wonders and those that are mimicked or fabricated. And I, I believe that's, that's what's in view, is that there will be these signs and wonders that are done so as to persuade people of the message. And one in particular is this image of the beast that's set up and People are supposed to worship this image of the beast. And this false prophet is able to make it speak. That is 
part of the sign and wonder. It's widely attested, you know, that in ancient times, Roman times, that sorcerers could make marble statues speak. It was a gimmick, perhaps ventriloquism, I don't know, but they could do it. There's a historical sense to this in which if you were reading this as a first century Christian, you would know exactly what John was seeing. That it's not just some futuristic kind of thing, but it was a very present reality for them. That is, one of the tactics that Roman emperors would use so as to affirm allegiance and loyalty was they would set up images of themselves in places and require people to offer incense as worship to them. One particular instance uh, was the Emperor Trajan. Uh, About 15 years after this book was written, he had images set up and Christians forced at risk of death to worship them, an image. So, that you don't take my word for it, these words come from Pliny, also known as Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with the beer, Pliny the Older, Elder. But he wrote this, and he was a governor in Asia Minor, and he wrote this letter to Trajan, the emperor, and he said this. This is interesting, historically, and it makes sense of the passage. It says, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, that is, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered executed. All right? This is written some 15 years after the book of Revelation. And then he goes on to say this. He says, an anonymous document was published containing the names of many persons, that is, Christians. Someone squealed. Someone gave a list of names of who were Christians. He goes on to say, those who denied that they were or had been Christians when they invoked the gods in words dictated by me offered prayer with incense and wine to your image. That's the image of Trajan, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with statues of the gods and moreover cursed Christ. So bring the statue, the image, They were to offer incense, wine, as well as to other gods, statues of other gods, and to curse Christ. Now listen to this. None of which those who are really Christians, it is said, can be forced to do. That's that's quite a telling statement. Pliny is a pagan. He's not a Christian. He recognized that those who are truly Christians, he goes on to say, we're told that they can't do that. But nevertheless, there are people who pose as Christians or think they're Christians, but aren't really. And those who did worship, that is the image, it says, those I thought should be discharged, that is set free. Others named by uh, the informer declared that they were Christians, but then denied it, asserting that they had been, but had ceased to be some three years before, others many years, some as many as 25 years. They all worshiped your image and the statues of the gods and cursed Christ. That's a historical document that's not in the Bible. If you're a Christian in a tiny church in Smyrna and you're reading this, 
You know what the image of the beast is. It's not some mysterious future thing. It's a present thing. That is to say, um, as with the dragon and as with the first beast, these aren't just end times realities. These are, these are, these are present realities that, that may in fact escalate in the future. As with one final big deception, we've always faced this danger. We still face this danger with the fiber optic highway and a decreased ability to focus, think, and analyze. And fourth, this is the last part of the imagery. The false prophet draws, this is the part maybe you've been waiting for, I don't know. The false prophet draws identifiable lines of loyalty in the sand. So here you have this mysterious 666, or 666. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. That's a place that's obvious. It's identifiable. It's not like on your thigh or the lower part of your back. It's like everybody can see it. That's the point. So that no one could buy or sell unless they had the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. <laughs> now, what do you make with the 666? Movies have been made about that, right? I know people who, who have given up their license plates and got different license plates because it had the word 666, as if somehow you're going to have bad luck because 666 is part of your license plate cover. My parents, first three digits of their, without the area code of their phone number, 663, and it's like, whew, missed it by three. Could have been 666-2191. No, it's 663. What are we supposed to make of this? 666 or 666. Well, let me tell you this. There have been no shortage of possible answers to this. If I was to give you all of the possibilities, we would be here until next week, and that is no lie. Some have thought that this was a cryptic name for Nero. You know, you take a, an alphabet, and then you assign numbers to the letters on the alphabet, and you end up with a name. But in order for Nero to fit, you have to do alphabetical gymnastics. And hundreds of names have been subjected as a possible identification of this person, 666. So let me tell you what I do know. Without being able to identify the name, again, we're dealing with a symbolic book. Two verses later, keep in mind when the Bible was written, it had no chapter headings. It wasn't divided up. It was just a big, long, long letter. So Revelation did just straight text. So leave out the chapter 14 chapter heading or chapter division, and you read this. Verse 16 talks about the right hand or the, or, or the forehead, the mark. And then just a couple verses later, you read, And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him the 144,000, who we earlier in, interpreted as the, the whole of the people of God, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So you have, within just a couple of verses... Two different people marked by two names. One is marked by the name of the beast, and the other marked by the name of the father or the lamb. 
What does what, what, what a mark do? It signifies ownership. Family, you belong to it. So you go up into the mountains and you backpack, there are these free-range cattle. You wonder, how can you ever keep track of who's who? Well, there's a brand on top of those cattle that says, this belongs to this farm, this belongs to a different farm or different rancher. In chapter 14, it seems to me that it's clear that it's metaphorical, the mark. That is, God has placed his spirit in you, and you belong to him. You are part of his family. His name is written on your life. And if that's metaphorical, then it stands to reason that the contrasting name is also metaphorical. The fact that it's identifiable is, is more of a, of, of, of a declaration of your actions of loyalty, your actions of allegiance, and your actions of worship. A line in the sand. So in the first century, the line in the sand was, are you going to offer up incense to this image of Caesar or not? There's a line in the sand. Everybody can see this Christian, so-called, has worshipped the beast, thereby showing that he, in fact, is owned by the beast, that is, this world. It's associated more with your actions, actions of loyalty and allegiance and worship than it is a literal mark. You're not going to get this by accident, by taking the vaccine. It's going to be a willful act of defiance against Christ and submission to worldly power or to the opposite. As Pliny himself said, true Christians, we're told, can't do this. And many of them refused to do it and perished as a result. That is a demonstration of whose mark a Christian bears. And one of two, you belong to this world or you belong to the kingdom of Christ. You belong to the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. I've said this before. And the one that you serve, the one that you show allegiance to, when you cross that line in the sand, I think, you bear the mark. It's not, it's not, it's not mysterious. It's rather simple. Now, what is the actual, why, why 666 instead of 888 or 999? My best guess is that it's not referring to a particular man. Notice at the end of verse 18, it says, for it is the number of a man. Another Greek translation of that would be, for it is the number of man, mankind, generically, which makes sense. Man was created on the sixth day. And if seven is the number of perfection, then six is the number of imperfection, suggesting that it's just a mark of fallen humanity, a mark of imperfection, the mark of sinful humanity. If you have more than that, knock yourself out. But that's the best I have for the 666. But let me just pan back here so you get the point. Evil comes at us in two primary ways. That is, if you want to call him the devil at this point, attacks God's people in two ways. By way of force or persecution and by way of lies, seduction, subterfuge. Those are the two primary ways that he attacks God's people and does his stuff on earth through force and through lies. Those are the two major ways. And there are places in this, you know, on this globe where the first beast is 
flexing his muscle, whether it be parts of Iran or North Korea, attacked by force. There are other places in the world, like the United States, where I think the second beast is in play, seeking to deceive through lies, through false narratives, so that we derail. Those are the two primary ways. And are we awake to what he's doing in our time? A couple of applications, and I'll make this quick, of this. How do we take this, this deception that's out there, this intentional, willful deception of the world and at least attempt, attempts at God's people? First and foremost, I had to start here. So you've got to trust that God will protect and preserve you from deception. One of the main emphases of this book is like God is going to see you through this. He's marked you. He's going to keep you. He keeps his own. The first rule is we always depend upon grace. Not the power of our own volition. If we think for one moment that we're going to somehow Navy seal it up, and refuse and pay with your life, well, guess what? You're banking on human strength rather than on your knees going, God, at heart, if I, without you, I'd be a coward, and I pray that you will give me the grace. I know that you walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us. I know that you walk through the valley of deception with us, and you will not leave me. Our first is always to trust the Lord that he is going to preserve us and protect us from ultimate deception and give us the strength when that day comes or if that day comes. And we face them all the time. Am I going to compromise or not? Will I stand true? Second, understand God is a God of means. That is, he uses things to accomplish our preservation. And one of the primary means is, is the truth, the, the word. I mean, this book was written, Revelation was written so that we would be equipped to persevere. We'd understand the difference between the dragon and the first beast and the second beast, so we'd have eyes to see what's going on. Yeah, we have to be people saturated in the truth. That's one of the main reasons that we come to church, is to hear the truth of God, to sing the truth of God, to pray the truth of God, to be saturated in the truth. And if you're a person who's, who, who thinks, I just don't know very much about the Bible, you know what? Everybody starts somewhere. Sometimes it's just a verse. Then it turns into a chapter. Then it turns into a book. And next thing you know, wow, I, 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 I know God's truth more than I ever did before. How did Jesus deal with the, decept, the, the deceiver, right? When his, during his, his, his time in the desert. Well, when the tempter came and said, hey, turn that rock into stone or into bread. And what did he say? He said, you know, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was quoting Moses. He was quoting the Bible. That's how Jesus did it. So you've got to trust that the grace of God is going to preserve us, saturate ourselves in the truth of God. Embrace the importance of perseverance. Now, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24, he says, those who endure to the end shall be saved. That makes endurance very, very important to our faith. It's important to our faith because it's a fruit of faith, a fruit of real faith. If you really believe something, you'll endure in that belief. If you have a superficial belief, don't really believe it, well then, when you're put to the fire, you'll throw up your hands. You'll do what many believers did in the first century. You'll offer that incense to Caesar. Why? Because you never really believed to begin with. 
There's embrace the importance of perseverance. There's, there's compromise is not an option for the Christian. Four, this is an obvious one. Be watchful and vigilant. Somehow we have to reverse the course of what the internet's doing to our brains and begin to focus, have our eyes open, be able to analyze, ask questions. Wait a second, am I being duped here or not? That's not to say you become a conspiracy theorist. That's, that's not a good response. But Jesus did tell us to be watchful, be sober, be thinking. The enemy's out there, roaring like a lion. And last, taking on a confident note, just, we just need to know and be confident that the ultimate victory is Jesus. He won it at the cross, and he's coming, to, coming back. And, and all three of these unholy members of this unholy trio, the dragon and the first beast and the second beast, guess what? In the chapters that follow, each and every one of them sequentially get wiped out. Never to rise again. There's a time where the deceiver will be thrown down, the dragon will be thrown down, and the false prophet, excuse me, the, the, um, the first beast thrown down to the ground never to rise. And we will experience the joy of our king in a <laughs> deceit-free environment of the new creation. And we look forward to that. And it's worth living for. So keep your eyes open, Christian. And keep my eyes open to the truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, uh, your promises and your truth. I just ask that you equip us in humility, with eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to understand, a heart to trust you, a heart to persevere and not compromise. Thank you for um, the assurance that you've given to us that no one, no power can ever pluck us from your hand, but you have us secure, and we hope in that, we trust that, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.